I'd invite you to turn now to the, um, to the book of Judges. We're only going to consider one verse, and that's at the very end of the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25. Uh, that's our text, primary text for this morning that we're going to be considering. Let's pray as we come to the Word of God this morning. Our Father in heaven, speak to us out of your scripture uh, the truth that we need to live the lives that are pleasing to you. We pray for all the ways in which uh, your word, the scriptures, are a means of grace to us how they can enlighten our minds and renew our wills, how they can teach us the proper fear of you, how they can remind us of your glory, how they can reveal to us our great need for Christ, how they can present Christ to us in such a way that our hearts are drawn to him, in humility, but also in a sense of anticipation that uh, our ultimate hunger and thirst can be satisfied in Christ. And then your word can also give us great encouragement. It can exhort us. It can admonish us to follow Jesus faithfully, guiding us to understand that in this world, You've called us, those who believe in Jesus, to be salt and light and to do so in such a way that the name of Christ is honored, to do so in such a way that a winsome sweetness would be displayed toward those who don't know you. And so we pray, Father, as we take up the word this morning to look at it, that you would work in us that which is pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the end of the book of Judges, you have a statement that's presented that is, in many ways, a summarization of what is going on in the history of Israel at this time. Uh, The Exodus has taken place uh, more than 300 years earlier. Uh, The Promised Land has been conquered uh, under the leadership of Joshua. And now there's been a period of time where there's been more than a dozen judges raised up to lead Israel. But the history during this time is not a happy history. It's a history of spiritual declining and then sometimes renewal, but declining and then renewal, falling away from God and then renewal, fighting the enemies, being conquered by the enemies, being faithful to God, being tremendously unfaithful to God. And at the end of this period of time, uh, the writer who's recording all of this says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, uh, our sermon series, which has been focusing upon seeing Christ in the Old Testament, is now about to take a turn toward looking beyond the books of Moses into the rest of the scriptures. 
Now remember, it's Jesus himself who taught his apostles that they were to read the Old Testament scriptures in light of him, to see Jesus in the Old Testament. i take you back to verses we have read many times now, John chapter 5, verse 39, and then verse 46. Uh, Say unto the Pharisees of his day, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But it is they, the scriptures, which bear witness of me. In verse 46, he says again, if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me because Moses wrote about me. We've considered, uh, not in complete depth, but we've considered how Moses wrote about Jesus. And now we've reached that transition point to look at the rest of the scriptures. And in, in doing so, we're going to primarily focus upon one of the Old Testament um, figures that, that bears preeminently, dominantly, in terms of God's revelation of Christ beyond the first five books of the Bible. And that figure is David, uh, the kingship of David. How God presents, reveals, predicts, Uh, in so many different ways, the coming Messiah through the life, the history, the prophecies, uh, the covenant, even types that are associated with David. Now today we have this text. Uh, And in looking at this text, uh, there's a main uh, lesson that I want to convey through this text. In a moment we're going to see how this text connects with what God is doing and intending to do in the rest of Scripture focused upon David. But out of this text this morning, which we've read, I want us to understand its main truth and teaching in light of all of Scripture. When we enthrone ourselves, we set ourselves against God. What we really need is to enthrone Christ, seek forgiveness, repent of our sins, and trust in his grace. Now, the message based upon this text is going to have three principal parts to it. We're going to look at how this verse points to God being dethroned. We're secondly going to look at how this verse speaks to how the self gets enthroned. And then thirdly, we're going to see how in light of the disaster that comes about when we enthrone ourselves, our greatest need is to enthrone Christ. The dethronement of God, the enthronement of self, and then ultimately living under the throne of Christ. Three simple but direct ideas, three ideas that are central to the gospel and understanding what God has done for us in Christ. Now, a little bit of background uh, to talk about how the text that we have here, Judges 21-25, actually connects to the story of David and the coming of the Messiah. Uh, The connection basically involves this. The time in which we're talking about is the end of the era of the judges, which becomes a transition 
uh, in terms of the history of Israel. Um, toward this period of time, the end of this period of time in Judges, we have a story in the Old Testament where God introduces a broken-hearted woman whose name is Hannah, whose heart is broken because she is barren. She cannot have children. But in faith, she prays that God would open up her womb and heal her broken heart and give her a son. Now God hears her prayer. God grants her that son. His name is Samuel. Samuel is the last of the judges. But Samuel is also the one who is going to anoint David, a man after God's own heart, through whom God is going to establish his covenant, an everlasting covenant, his kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, and in and through David present tremendous amounts of prophetic, forward-looking information concerning David's greater son, the Messiah, even Jesus Christ. Now, the specific messianic connection in Hannah's life to that coming Messiah that's going to come through the seed of David is found in Hannah's prayer. She has this tremendous prayer of thanksgiving for what God does for her. It's 1 Samuel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read just the 10th verse and listen to what God inspires Hannah to pray. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them God will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now this prayer is prophetic. It looks forward to a coming king. Remember, at the time, there is no king in Israel. Hannah looks forward to a coming king to whom God will give strength to this one who is anointed. What's interesting is in the time of the apostles, they're reading the Old Testament in the Greek translation, the Septuagint. So let me tell you what the Septuagint reads literally in terms of the very last phrase of Hannah's prayer. It reads like this. He will lift up the horn. He will lift high the horn of his Christ. He will lift high the horn of his Christ. Hannah's prayer was predictive. It's predictive of the anointed one to come, even the Christ. Now, in and through then, this anointed king, uh, God's Messiah, God is going to guard his faithful ones. God will cut off the wicked in darkness. God is going to break to pieces his enemies, and God is going to judge the ends of the earth, just what Hannah prays. But in all of the Old Testament, there is never any of David's line or David's seed that ever fulfilled these things to the degree that Hannah prays. Because even David in all of his glory 
was never able to accomplish all that God intended to accomplish through David's greater son, even the Lord Jesus Christ. So the point of all of this is Judges 21-25 describes the fallenness of the human race and of the Israelites during this period of time. When God is dethroned, when human beings place themselves upon their own throne, which then describes historically, redemptively, how great the need is for God to address this situation by his own Messiah, by his own Son coming into the world. The great need when people dethrone God and enthrone themselves is for Christ. So, the first part of the verse, looking at this concept of the dethroning of God. Now, the verse itself has two parts to it. Uh, there was no king in Israel, first part. Second part, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Second part. This whole statement is found earlier in the book of Judges, chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, then in 18.1, the first half is stated, uh, in those days, there was no king in Israel. A very similar statement occurs in chapter 19, verse 1. In, the, in those days, when there was no king in Israel, the point is, the writer is emphasizing the condition in Israel. There was no king in Israel. Uh, the lack of there being a king is something that's emphasized quite strongly. But there's a complexity to this statement. Uh, here's what I mean. In the first case, in the first way of looking at this verse, it's transparently true that as you look at the other nations surrounding Israel at this time and the 12 tribes, yeah, they all have kings. They all have human kings. They all have somebody who's the head of state. They have someone who is over the entire country, but not Israel. Israel doesn't have a human king. Israel doesn't have a, a kingly family. There's no dynasty. There's no monarchy. There's no head of state during this time. So at, at, in that sense, the statement is transparently true. But in another sense, and an even more important sense because of Scripture, uh, this statement isn't true at all. Because back at the time of the Exodus, when God brings Israel out of Egypt, before they get to Mount Sinai, they have a point in chapter 19, verses 4, 5, and 6, where God actually establishes a kind of uh, it's a statement that basically says, now you are a nation. Now listen to what God says. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, which he's going to give in the next chapter, chapter 20, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God establishes the Israelites as a nation, and they are his kingdom. Now, if they are his kingdom, what does that make him? He is their king. So that's why in Deuteronomy 33, verse 5, uh, the blessing of Moses, the last thing that Moses is saying to the people of Israel, he says in verse 5, Thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun. 
Now, Jeshurun is a nickname for Israel. But Moses is reminding the people of God that God became their king. And he became their king because he warred upon the Egyptian gods. He, he carried out his campaign against all the gods of Egypt and he defeated them. And it defeated them. He brought his people out of the house of uh, slavery, out of that bondage. Uh, he was their God by virtue of establishing his covenant with them. He was their king by virtue of covenant. Uh, he was their king by virtue of giving them all of their laws and all of their customs that they were to live by. And then, under Joshua, it was God who actually went before them to establish his warfare against all of the nations. It was God who actually conquered all the nations before Joshua and the armies of Israel. God, then, was their king in every way. So it's a far cry from the truth when Judges 21-25 says there was no king in Israel. Rather, that statement is the sad statement that the people of Israel had fallen away from God as their king. And the way they had fallen away was idolatry. Uh, they had themselves been affected by all of the cultures surrounding them. They embraced the same kind of Baal worship that these other nations had embraced. Uh, Baal worship, which was a worship of the fertility god, and all of the kind of uh, abominable practices associated with it, they effectively exchanged their loyalty to God to a loyalty to Baal. They stopped being ruled over by God. Uh, they didn't obey his law. They didn't follow his practices and customs. Uh, they neglected the proper worship of God. And that is how they dethroned God over their lives. Impossible for them to dethrone God in heaven. Uh, but they effectively dethroned God over their lives. And that's the full meaning of why the writer here says, there was no God in Israel. Excuse me, there was no king in Israel. Because the Israelites rejected God as their king. They had neither a human king, they had neither a divine king. Now, what was the result? What was the result in Israel? The Israelites, in rejecting God as their king, conformed to all the patterns, the sinful and wicked patterns of all the nations surrounding them. And we do the same thing. It was the Russian novelist Dostoevsky who said in the brothers Karamazov, for if there's no everlasting God, there's no such thing as virtue and there's no need of it. If we dethrone God in our lives, then we can make up all of the rules ourselves. We can fully call the shots. And that's moral and spiritual disaster. Now you hear that and you may be thinking, as many of us ought to be thinking, about our own culture this day. So let's go on to the second thing, verse 25, where we see the enthroning of the self. 
this is the fundamental meaning of what Scripture says here. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, each person had his or her own moral and spiritual compass, moral and spiritual authority. Each person listened to his own heart, obeyed his own heart, acted according to his own heart, which is that this is what it means to enthrone the self. When you use yourself as the standard by which you choose to live, you have enthroned yourself above everything else. It may be your own happiness. It may be your career. It may be your job. It may be your family. It may be your children. But whatever you choose to be the thing by which you live out your life, if it's your choice, if you control it, you have enthroned yourself above everything else. Without God, this is where people go. Invariably, this is the drift among people. If they have dethroned God, they will enthrone the self. Now, for Israel, what, what affected them was the pagan surrounding, the pagan influences. And in the time of the judges, uh, that culture practiced things which God had said were abominations. Now, back in Leviticus 18, God had Moses write out a list of all of those things that the pagan nations did that were abominations in the eyes of God, things that were absolutely forbidden. I'm not going to read that list. You ought to look up that list and read it for yourself. But we can summarize that list this way. What is absolutely forbidden is everything that violates the sacredness of a covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Every form of sexual immorality, everything that violates the biblical standard of what keeps human sexuality sacred and pure. The nation surrounding Israel practiced every kind of violation of the covenant of marriage and the biblical ethic of human sexuality. Everything was practiced in the nations surrounding Israel at this time. Now, the point is this. When the God of the Bible isn't king over morality, then we adopt a morality in accordance with what is right in our own eyes, and what is right in our own eyes will be directly influenced by the culture we live in. We will enthrone ourselves as our highest authority but that which informs us will be everything about us in our culture. Now, that's where we are today, in our culture. We live in a culture that has intentionally moved in the direction to enthrone the self as the highest authority. It has done so, so rapidly in the last decade, 
by virtue of its laws, by virtue of judicial decisions, by virtue of what is implemented into the public schools of America now. We have, as it were, a whole new set of individual rights in accordance with the enthronement of self. For instance, you now have the right to define who you are, regardless of what your physical body or DNA or chromosomes might say. You have the, the right to define your own meaning and purpose in life. You have the right to define right and wrong for you. And then you have the right to expect the government to promote and protect this radical conception of self-determination. That's where we are today. That's what our culture is like. That's what we read about time and again going on within our nation. That's the agenda that's being forwarded and motivated and is finding so much traction in our culture. But what's the biblical perspective? The biblical perspective is anchored in Genesis chapter 3 and in the story of the fall. Radical self-determination the enthronement of self, radical self-determination, is exactly what Adam and Eve did. It's exactly what they did. They chose to define themselves and to determine their lives in rejection of the authority of God. They did not submit to God, but they chose against God's authority and God's kingly rule over their lives. Not what thy will is, God, but my will be done. The biblical view in response to that would say, if we enthrone the self, we pit ourselves against God as the king, even against Christ, which means we have a disastrously broken moral compass. We will show ourselves to be enemies of God. But especially we will show ourselves to be enemies of the design that God established for human beings created in his image. The point is, the enthroned self needs redemption. And that leads us to our last point. The only biblical way to address the enthroned self is to enthrone Christ. The only way to address what is happening within our culture. By the way, this message is not about changing culture. It's about changing you and me. Because you and I are not uninfluenced by this culture. You and I will find ourselves thinking that we have far more self-centered rights than God ever allowed his creatures to possess. We will think it ought to be my way at times or the highway. We will find ourselves humming Frank Sinatra's song 
whatever it goes, but his last line is, I did it my way. Uh, we will find ourselves, in some sense, agreeing with Thomas Henley's uh, poem, Invictus. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. We will find ourselves thinking that we have the ability to be all that we can be. We will find ourselves thinking in ways that are independent of God's reign and rule over our lives. And that's why we've got to recognize that the only way to address this enthronement of self is to dethrone self by enthroning Christ. Now, this is what Jesus taught in his life and ministry. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, this is what Jesus said. If any of you would come after me, if any of you would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. The way to understand what Jesus means by self-denial is to recognize Jesus as addressing the self as the thing that's enthroned. You cannot follow Jesus when you are in the demand and command center of your life. You can't. You can't be a follower of Christ if you think that you are calling the shots over who you are and what you do. It's that sense of personal autonomy, personal freedom, personal authority that Jesus is speaking of when he says, if you're going to come after me, step one, you must deny yourself. And then you've got to take up your cross and follow me. The cross, of course, is the instrument of death. You've got to be willing to die to that self that you want to enthrone. And then you've got to place yourself under the authority of Christ, which is what it means to follow him. Now that means to understand that Jesus is king and Jesus is Lord, and therefore we are not our own. As scripture says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God with your bodies, which really means glorify God with everything you are. You do not belong to you. You must deny the idea that you belong to you. You must deny the idea that you have some set of rights over yourself. No. You belong to Christ. If you are truly a Christian, you belong to him. He bought you. He redeemed you with his blood. He purchased your life. You and all you are belong to him. Your identity, 
your very purpose, your calling, everything about you. To be a Christian means everything about you must belong to Christ going forward. The Apostle Paul states it in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Because of the mercies of God by which he bought you with the blood of his Son, the exhortation then is this. Live your life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and conform no longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds in order that you may test and approve what God's will is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul is saying, if you have been changed by the mercies of God, if you know that Christ is now your King and your Lord, then your response is to offer yourself every day, to, to commit yourself every day, to surrender yourself every day to the living God. That's acceptable worship. And at the same time, don't conform to the world's patterns. Don't conform to that strong pull to exerting in your life the idea that you are ultimately in charge. But rather, be transformed by God's word, redoing your mind, so that you'll be willing and desirous of submitting yourself and living by the will of God. That's the pattern you're to live. Christ enthroned over your life. Christ, your King. Christ, your Savior from your sin. Your Redeemer who purchased you with His blood but ultimately, your King and your Lord. Finish this way. In the final analysis, either we are living for Christ or we are living for self. Don't think you can drift in some kind of in-between Don't think that I'm a Christian somewhere in between living for Christ and living for self. The great temptation is always to live for self. If Christ is your Lord, you will be seeking every day to deny yourself Take up that cross daily and follow him. Let us live to Christ alone. Let's pray. Almighty God, 
if we do not have Christ as our king, then every one of us will do what is right in our own eyes to our present and eternal disaster. And so we pray, O Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts of all that Jesus is, that he and he alone can satisfy the hunger and thirst that we have in life. Give us the deepest desire to live for Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen.